Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back. You are still listening to The Valley Labor Report. We are now in the second half of the show that we call Overtime. We are on the uh, online only. We have freed ourselves from the shackles of the FCC censors, and we appreciate you staying tuned, folks. Uh, we have over. 30 people watching us right now and only 26 likes so if you have not liked the stream then please do that um if you have not subscribed to the channel then please do that uh you can also subscribe to our newsletter at tvlr.fm slash contact appreciate everybody tuning in got uh, some folks in the facebook chat uh ray uh pierce says we love Jennifer up here in Iowa, that's great. Uh, Joe and Mel in the chat, good morning. Appreciate y'all tuning in. Um, ben, Jada, Union Joe, Marissa, uh, Penny, Jose, Omni, Chrome, uh, and I think that's everybody that I've seen. Notary S, Brandon. Yeah, appreciate all y'all in the YouTube chat hanging out with us. Um, there were comments throughout the show about the UAW's endorsement. Uh, Pittsburgh Dude 87 said, After the UAW called for a ceasefire, Sean Fain endorsed Genocide Joe, who also broke up the rail worker strike. What a disappointment. Um, and uh, F YouTube censorship said, Trump caused a lot of the problems and would make everything worse. It's not disappointing at all to stop to try to stop Trump. And that's kind of the... And then uh, and then the um, one of the more recent comments, Notary S said... I was expecting an eventual, an eventual dim endorsement, uh, but it was too early. Lost a lot of bargaining power. Still a fan of Fane and the Union, and I'm sure they had reasons I don't know, but that's my personal take. And those are kind of the... That's pretty representative of the range of opinions about this. Uh, and I think the latter being the most common, uh, or at least the most common among kind of the labor left, you know, the people who are kind of in the same circles as we are, uh, ideologically and strategically. Um, there's, I, I think, a, a pr uh, uh, something approaching a consensus view that uh, this was still too early and the timing didn't make sense with it being about nine months out from the election. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and so, uh, but... A lot of the people that, that are saying that, you know, it's still a pretty consensus view that, you know, the union should probably endorse Biden at some point. The question is, is only kind of when uh, Teamster and uh, steering committee co-chair for the Teamsters for a Democratic Union, Sean Orr, uh, also a member of the DSA Labor Commission steering committee, said we should debate whether or not leverage was maximized. But endorsing Biden to block a second Trump term is ultimately the right thing to do for any the right thing for any union to be doing right now. Um, 
on the effectiveness of Sean Fain, which is why I wanted to play that and why why I wanted to play that speech and why I wanted to play um, that speech for the radio audience. Miles Camp Lassen, who uh, works for In These Times, he said that maybe the best spokesperson to take on Trump and make the case he's an anti-working class candidate in 2024 is UAW President Sean Fain. Sounds like he's already on the campaign trail and Biden is extremely lucky. And that is, of course, true. Whatever you think about literally anything else, that is just objectively true that Sean Fain is one of the best people to do this. And he is doing that, making the case that Trump is an anti-working class candidate in the most effective way that I have heard throughout the campaign season. I have not heard a more convincing speech for the Biden candidacy than what we just played. Um, and I think that that we're going to see more of that from Sean Fain, whether uh, that's something that, that you know folks want to see or not. I think that's something that we will see. Um, somebody else, another union member on Twitter said, of course, the UAW endorsed Biden. Trump winning means that tens of thousands of UAW members could lose bargaining rights. Republicans do not believe that grad workers should be able to form unions. Trump's administration literally tried to take it away when he was president. And that is true. Um, it is interesting then it, it, it is, it, there's an interesting kind of tension there though, because in, in many ways, uh, higher education workers have the most to lose from a Republican NLRB because their entire right to exist as such um, could be taken away. And yet they are uh, the ones in the UAW kind of leading the call for a ceasefire. There are, of course, calls for a ceasefire in the UAW from other sectors, uh, but the higher ed seems to be at the forefront of this campaign within the UAW. Uh, there was one UAW member, a public defender on Twitter, said that whatever your opinion of the UAW Biden endorsement, it stung to see one of my best friends dragged out of the CAP conference. And it was painful seeing my union siblings who organized day and night for a ceasefire to be drowned out. And that is something that happened during Biden's speech where there were chants for a ceasefire and those chants were drowned out by UAW, UAW which I also found extremely distasteful. I found it as distasteful as the people in the church in South Carolina saying four more years as people were calling for a ceasefire. Uh, I think just the language of four more years while people are chanting for a ceasefire is even more kind of like... Um, jarring? <laughs> jarring, yeah, than just chanting, UA chanting UAW. But uh, Region 9A director Brandon Mancia said... Uh, I am disgusted and disappointed in the response from members and leaders that started chanting UAW to drown out the protests. Our union's name should not be used as a tool to silence speech for peace and social justice. Um, and I think that is, um, I think that makes a lot of sense as well. Uh, you know, you didn't have to, there was no reason to do that because the Secret Service was pulling these people out and UAW members did not have to, you know, dirty their hands with that. There was no reason for that at all. Right. They could have just let the Secret Service take those folks out. And then Biden goes on with his speech. Um, I think Channing UAW, like uh, uh, like Mancia said, um, was really kind of a, a step too far. And uh, and 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 like you said, Adam, jarring. Um, and and uh, yeah, I wouldn't have done it. Um, the as the you know, uh, reporting on those protesters being 
dragged out, though. There was an attempt to separate the protesters from the UAW. Uh, the White House New York Times reporter, in fact, uh, their reporting on this said, quote, Gaza protesters dragged out on the floor by their hands at this Biden speech. UAW workers trying to drown them out. Right. So there's a <laughs> they're trying to say that these are different groups of people. When um, in fact, it's the helmets actually, versus hard hats thing again. Well, no, I mean, they're just saying that they're not UAW workers when they are these. The protesters were UAW workers. Right. right. Whatever their sector, they were. They were UAW workers. They were not a separate entity from the delegates. They were delegates to the conference, members of the UAW elected or appointed by whatever mechanism their local union had to send them to this conference. Uh, you Absolutely. know, democratically accountable and uh, with that authority. Yeah, and it's it's uh, pretty gross to see the media, you know, try to misconstrue that. Um, another reporter said workers don't seem surprised that the UAW endorsed Biden, but some are discouraged by the timing, especially as many in the crowds today and yesterday cheered as Sean Fain and Rashida Tlaib called for peace in Gaza. Workers argue this early endorsement dulls their leverage. And that is and, and you know, the it, it really the theme surrounded the timing and the dissonance with the UAW's official position as uh, calling for a ceasefire and then endorsing Biden as this is all happening. And, you know, Fain himself, like this reporter said, spoke about the Israel-Palestine issue. And so let's just, I pulled this clip, let's just go ahead and play that so you can hear what Sean Fain had to say about the issue. You know, as I said last Monday, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day. And what Dr. King taught us is that the fight for economic and social justice is not bound by space or time. We don't stop our fight for justice at the workplace. We don't stop our fight for justice because it's not the right time. When and where there's a war, whether it's Vietnam or in Gaza, we call for peace. Didn't spend as much time on that as he did other issues, but it was a, you know, there was a, it was a strong statement there and unambiguous. Um, Alex Press in Jacobin eloquently, as always, wrote about why, you know, because then there's the question, okay, why is this even, why would, why would this preclude the UAW from endorsing them, at least at this time? Why would a union even take a stance on foreign policy issues? Uh, and in Jacobin, Alex Press writes uh, the column, internationalism is in labor's interests. Um, she says, why do labor unions take positions on foreign policy? This is Alex Press. It's a fair question, but the truth is that foreign policy is not really, quote, foreign. It affects the lives of union members every day, and some members are more concerned with securing a ceasefire than whether Trump or Biden wins the presidential election. And setting aside the fact that many union members have family and friends who have been killed or maimed by Israel in recent months, and that a broad coalition of Palestinian unions has called for solidarity from their fellow workers around the world, not to mention the immigration morality of sitting on the sidelines during a massacre, war has economic effects. Later in the article, um, she talks about the uh, uh, U.S. labor movement's um, weakness in foreign policy historically, saying, 
when we don't support Mexican auto workers building independent unions that can actually raise their standards, we condemn ourselves to further job loss domestically as employers relocate south of the border to exploit a more captive workforce. Union members know that the floor must be raised for everyone or the boss will begin moving work to those who do it on the cheap. This applies globally, too. There is a special obligation here in the labor movement to protect our brothers and sisters no matter where they may live. It is an extension of the same principle of domestic unionism. Workers divided among themselves will always be weaker in the long run. Um, that's a very, uh, uh, very eloquent case for internationalism and a correct one, in my view. Um, going to share some more of Mancia's statement on the UAW's endorsement because he had a lot of good stuff to say. And there was another interesting story that he relayed. Um, so he said that... Um, so Mancia, in his statement, you can find the whole statement on, on Twitter, he said that... Um, that uh, at the request of President Sean Fain, I and the rest of my colleagues on the International Executive Board voted to endorse Joe Biden for President of the United States. In our deliberations, I expressed my deep reservations about Biden's policies and the vital importance of our union's call for a ceasefire. Um, and they said, uh, he said that during the, um, there was a conversation with Biden where Mancia and another Region uh, 9A member emphasized directly to Biden that the UAW has called for a ceasefire and demands an end to the killing of innocent civilians in Palestine. President Biden engaged us in conversation for a few minutes, and we made it clear to him that our membership stands by our call for a ceasefire. And here's the story that was another kind of like, wow, why did uh, kind of kick in the gut? Afterwards, I was told by White House staff that if I did not remove the three stickers from my jacket that read UAW Peace Justice, UAW for Ceasefire, and UAW Work for Peace before entering the stage with my fellow International Executive Board members, President Biden would cancel his speech. I refused to remove any of these stickers, especially the UAW for Ceasefire one, and it turns out it was an empty threat. As an elected representative of our membership, I have every right to appear publicly before the membership at a UAW event displaying support for our union's positions, and President Biden should know he can't boss us around. Um, and then he talks about how there have been calls for the UAW's endorsement process to be reformed, uh, to make it more democratic so that it is not done just on a vote of the International Executive Board. Um, talks about work around that and around uh, ceasefire work more generally. So, uh, so yeah, I thought that was a good statement. Um, putting out, you know, giving some people some more information and 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 setting out some uh, some important principles on. Uh, democracy and internationalism so uh so there you go there yeah we go. had That's some kinda... conversation in the chat as well um you know new york times always siding with the bosses uh totally agree with that comment that is yeah. um i mean there are some good reporters doing good work for the new york times no doubt uh we mentioned some of that earlier this morning uh but yeah it's never shocking to me if the new york times you know mischaracterizes something in a way that uh is not good for working people mm -hmm. yeah and jose i i see there's some comments about the tdu and uh there was i'm sure that you saw john palmer's letter um 
We're going to talk about that later in the program, John Palmer's letter to Sean O'Brien. Um, uh, but before that, we have a guest. Is he in the Zoom? Absolutely. Fantastic. So um, there are now actually two podcasts about the CIO. The CIO, obviously a very important uh, a very important institution in the history of American labor. And um, so there are now two podcasts talking about that, and we're going to have to talk to the folks uh, involved in the other one. But this one is a project of Jacobin. The host is uh, Benjamin Fong, and he is... It, it, the, the structure of the podcast is really interesting because... Uh, Fong's voice does not appear a whole lot. It's actually a lot of historians and, uh, and archival, uh, uh, audio tapes. Um, and so it makes for, a, uh, an interesting listen, uh, pulling all of these voices together to create a narrative around the CIO. And so I have enjoyed it. I've listened to all of them so far. I don't know how many are going to come out, but they've been coming out weekly. Um, so here to talk about that with us is Benjamin Fong, host of, uh, Organize the Unorganized, Jacobin's podcast about the CIO. Benjamin, thanks for taking the time. Uh, I think he is, is he muted or can you hear him, Adam? Oh, I'm. Oh, I heard you say, oh, and then you went silent again. <laughs> there we All go. All right. I think it should be working now. You're okay. good. You're great. good. Thanks, man. <laughs> okay, yeah, great. so thanks for taking uh, the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I was just saying, uh, mercifully, you don't have to hear that much of my voice on the podcast. I narrate it pretty minimally just to tie things together. Uh, but it's mostly uh, comprised of interviews with labor historians, labor experts telling the story of the CIO, and of course, songs and archival clips interspersed throughout. Um. One of my favorite things about, I mean, there are many great things about the labor movement in the mid 20th century, but uh, one of the things that I really loved was the focus on music. And I have enjoyed your use of that tradition uh, of music in uh, uh, in the labor movement. Um, and uh, I, how did you pick those songs specifically? So there were CIO, um, UAW songbooks that you can find. Uh, some of them are online. Some of them you can find through different libraries. Uh, and I mostly relied upon those uh, things that were included in those songbooks, songs that people at the time would have sung on the picket line. Um, in some cases, the CIO put out documentaries where they use music. And so I drew from those mm. as well. Uh, the CIO, especially the later CIO, uh, was a very active media con conglomerate, you could say. They had radio programs, they had TV spots, they did a lot of media work to try to influence mass culture to be in the interest of the working class. Uh, an ambivalent legacy there, of course. Um, but they tried, and as a result, they they put, put together a lot of uh, great, great material to draw from. Um, you know, it's a, it was a great time for music because... Um, because a lot of great new songs were being created, oftentimes from old spirituals uh, adapted to the union context. Um, but they were also drawing upon songs from the IWW and, you know, older songs. Um, so it was it was a good it wasn't necessarily the most creative time for for labor music, but uh, it was a fun time because there was a lot of material to draw from. Yes, and I think I come from a religious background. I'm not religious anymore, but uh, in, in the church that I grew up at, there was a very strong emphasis on 
music as a collective enterprise, right? So at the church that I grew up at, um, there was there was really a culture of participation in that part of the service. And, it, and, and, you know, the, the song leader in the, in the church was like, you know, it doesn't matter how you sound. Uh, we're just, you know, we're just doing this for the Lord and, and we're just making a joyful noise. And so everybody participate. And there was a really high percentage of participation and, and you could really feel like a togetherness there. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I think there was kind of a, uh, a, a similar thing going on with union music during that time because they were, they were taken from, you know, a lot of these spirituals. And, and so the emphasis wasn't necessarily on, you know, is this the most kind of artistically valuable piece of art that's been created ever, or yeah. is this the most creative yeah. or the most interesting thing? The, the, uh, the thing was, how can we get the most people participating in this uh in this activity make them feel together and so that you know relying on spirituals makes sense because a lot of people already know those songs um and that kind of uh flows into a good union ethic right because it's all about a collective project uh the project of organized labor um, and so, you know, moving away from my own kind of niche interest in, in music and, <laughs> and labor, what made you and Jacobin want to do a, uh, a project about the CIO, uh, during this time? Yeah. I mean, just real quickly on the previous point, um, you know, what is noticeable about CIO organizers and the key CIO leaders is that they were laser focused on reaching that mass audience, mm. right? They did so much to create uh, what historian Elizabeth Cohen and one of the podcast guests calls a culture of unity. And this was a time where there were uh, a lot of different kinds of divisions, obviously racial divisions, but ethnic divisions as well that aren't as, as salient uh, today as they were then. And they knew that to uh, organize the industrial working class, they needed to create a mass culture. And this was partially made possible by new technological developments at the time, radio, television, right? The, the formation of a nascent mass culture in America. But they did a ton to participate in that. And anything that worked to reach people, to reach masses of people, they wanted to be involved in. Um, and that sort of segues to your question, which is the, the reason for taking on, on the podcast. Um, you know, like we like we like to talk about labor upsurges, um, and there have been many notable ones throughout American history. Um, you know, Knights of Labor in eighteen eighty six, around World War One in the aftermath, nineteen nineteen. Um, you know, public sector unionism in the sixties and seventies, and these are all sort of key moments where you saw these these huge dramatic uh, membership increases for organized labor. Um, but if you look at the history, there's actually really nothing comparable to the CIO moment. It's the mm -hmm. one moment where masses of uh, American workers joined the labor movement, and not only that, but stayed in the labor movement for a really long time. I mean, it, it really seemed like a permanent breakthrough in the achievement of collective bargaining, and it wasn't, but it was stable enough that it lasted for a really long time despite employer opposition. And I, I don't think we often appreciate just what a, a unique moment it was. Um, I mean, obviously, any student of labor history knows the 30s was important, but um, but it was a one time where you can that you can point to in American history where the working class definitively won, where there was a revolution in working class living standards and life, 
And I think it ought to be mined for uh, its significance today, but also looked at for the different kinds of strategies and tactics employed by CIO organizers, um, because it was a ripe um, political economic opportunity they took advantage of, but they did a lot of smart things that I think that we can learn from today as well. Yes. And they also, you know, the, the, you talk about this in the last episode. And so I, I, I don't know if now there's, there's going to be a turn towards a critique of the CIO, but you mentioned that there's, there's really a mythology based some in fact, and then also based in ignoring some facts about the CIO uh, and the, the mythology being that this was this really radical democratic experiment that was, you know, bottom up and, and everything, uh, uh, you know, and everything was great and it, and it was all good. And, and in your last episode, you start to touch on the fact that, yeah, you know, there's some there's some contradictions here, particularly in the Steelworkers campaign that I had. Yeah. Um, and there's actually a, a, a similar history to the Steelworkers in the paper mills. Um, and so it's kind of interesting that that the paper unions merged with the steelworkers who had a very similar kind of top down boss friendly organization in contrast with the auto workers and, and UE. And so I, I want to touch on that first, but or, or, on that later. But let's can, can you explain to us what are the positive developments or how did the positive developments come about from the CIO you know the the auto industries and uh the organization of the auto industry in particular really was a, a pretty uniquely bottom up democratic and radical enterprise uh how did that happen and what were the ramifications of that sure you know it was a unique situation I think the first thing to say is that a lot of what made the CIO successful would have been really difficult to pull off outside of the context of the 30s. I mean, this was a uh, a radial society-wide crisis that America was going through with the Great Depression. Um, a lot of people felt that industrial capitalism was on its deathbed. Um, and people were were, were suffering, um, but there was also just a widespread discontent with existing structures that, you know, I would say certainly doesn't exist today in that precise form. And that sort of rife anti-capitalism that pervaded the society amongst the working class, but against, uh, you know, amongst other classes as well, um, was, was a unique context. And it meant that, um, you know, when FDR was elected, there was an ex there was an expectation of radical change, even though uh, you know even if FDR himself might not have expected that. Um, when people like Frank Murphy, who was the governor of Michigan, was elected, they they were elected on promises uh, to work for working people to not break strikes. And so, in um, in the context of 36, 37, when you start to get the uh, the the resumption of, of various radical tactics, and specifically the sit down strike, you know, workers not just uh, striking and leaving the factory and going on the picket line, but just staying put and shutting down production. You know, this is a radical tactic. Um, it's something that at other points in American history and in other other places at the time were shut down quite violently. Uh, the National Guard was sent in and whatnot. But it was because of the particular political context where, um, again, there was this rife anti-capitalism and there was a political environment that was committed to at least being neutral 
with regard to organized labor, if not supportive, at least being neutral in the fight, um, that you got the success of these radical tactics. And so, you know, with the Flint strike in GM, it went on for 44 days. They were extremely smart about what they did. Near the end of that time, they worked, and I sort of narrate the sequence here in the last episode that was put online, the third episode. Um, they worked very strategically to occupy the most economically significant plant. It was where the motors were made. They knew that. And so they actually did this whole distraction strike at a different plant so that they could occupy plant number four. And when they did that, GM sort of realized we can't do anything now, right? They understood the strategic choke point. They seized it. And again, because Governor Murphy wouldn't send in the cops, um, they they quickly they quickly came to the table. Um, so I would say, you know, to get to your point just a second ago, it was really in the marriage of different elements at the mm -hmm. moment. It was the marriage of the willingness to take on radical tactics um, combined with a ripe political economic environment um, and then combined with, um, you know, certain top down elements that were really willing to exploit the discontent of the moment towards building stable collective bargaining structures and so there was a lot that cio leaders did that was really smart it wasn't it wasn't sexy it wasn't radical it wasn't revolutionary um but for instance in the steelworkers which you just mentioned they uh, had a very top-down strategy i mean the u.s steel was organized at a hotel meeting between myron taylor and john l lewis you know it's difficult to get any more top-down than that um but they also had this strategy of working within the company unions uh, to take them over. And, you know, I mean, you could say that that was sort of a compromise strategy from the start, like, you know, why work with these with these compromised structures of the company unions are just run by the bosses. But it was it was a good point of leverage. And I think something like, you know, 125,000 of the initial membership of the Steelworkers Organizing Committee came through these company unions, they, they went in to organize the company unions and brought them over to the Steelworkers Organizing Committee. So there was a lot of smart tactical stuff there that they did that wasn't, again, revolutionary or radical, but was very important in building the CIO. Um, you, you mentioned uh, briefly the distraction occupation by the UAW during the Flint strike, which um, pulled all of the company's forces to try to rebut this sit down in the distraction sit down and they were able to then occupy the plant that they really wanted uh and i would encourage people to read the many and the few uh by henry kraus who was the uaw's news editor uh when that happened uh his recounting of that series of events is really uh is really interesting and his whole um the whole book is really uh, an easy read as you know history books go it's written in a narrative format um and uh you know uh from a first person account and and so it's pretty easy to read and he does a really good job of making it easier easy to understand and interesting and engaging um i couldn't put it down when i was when i was reading it and i had just finished reading uh midnight in the vehicle city too so i so this is even after i had already read a book about the flint sit down strike and i still couldn't put it down it was it was a great book that was an interesting story in it and one of the things about the sit down strikes in particular that I'm wondering if you've spent much time reading about is the theory of property that they said, or that some people said justified the sit down ing 
the sit downing of the <laughs> in the factories, <laughs> right? Because it's an yeah. obvious kind of violation of property rights as is commonly yeah. understood, but there was there was a sort of uncommon understanding of property rights <laughs> that some people had. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, this is this is a theory that CIO lawyers in particular were really apt to push. And there the theory was that workers had a right to their job, that their job constituted a kind of property, um, and that they were merely exercising their right to retain that property. Um, in the American courts, you can imagine, uh, this didn't receive a friendly welcome. Um, but the you know, the sit-downs were of questionable status for a really long time. And, um, you know, one, one dynamic that's interesting about the sit down strikes is that it was a, it was a challenge to organize, right? It was to get these intransigent employers to, to finally come to the table. And that worked, right? When, when GM, when GM, uh, settled with the union, when they recognized the UAW, it was huge, right? I mean, it would be like, it would be like Amazon doing, doing something today. Uh, recognizing a Teamsters union. I mean, it was just a, a complete siege change. Everyone knew it. This is part of what precipitated the organization of steel. So it was a it was a big it was a big moment. Um, but but the sit downs were also a challenge to the legal system as well. The the Wagner Act, uh, the which created the National Labor Relations Act, which created the sort of model modern legal architecture for labor relations, which is still with us. Um, it had passed in 1935. And almost right away, the employers said, we're not going to abide by this. Like, this mm. is unconstitutional. And there were all these challenges in the courts to, uh, to the Wagner Act. And part of what the sit-downs were about was to get employers to uh, uphold the Wagner Act, right? They're saying, like, yeah, okay, we're doing something quasi-illegal, but you know what? You're doing something illegal as well in not abiding by this, this law, Right. Um, and so when when the sit down wave crested um, there, the Supreme Court finally declared the, the Wagner Act constitutional. And so they stabilized that collective bargaining regime. They said, no, you they said to employers, no, you really got to deal with these unions. Right. This is a new this is a new era that we've entered into of industrial relations. And you have to deal with the unions. You've got to negotiate them. You've got to recognize them. Um, but. At the same time, the Supreme Court goes and declares the sit-down tactic straightforwardly unconstitutional, right? Mm -hmm. So what the essential bargain was, okay, we will give you stable collective bargaining, but all this industrial strife that you've caused in 1936-37, that needs to end, and that needs to end yesterday. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a kind of grand bargain, and I think the CIO leadership knew it from the beginning. That was the bargain they wanted to strike. They wanted to say... Hey, we will control. We will provide stability in your industry, but you better give us a contract, or we're gonna be, uh, you know, just let this thing get out of control. And that was that was the promise of the CIO, and some people see that as constraining a more radical upsurge of of the CIO moment, and some people see it as brilliantly bottling that energy into a stable institutional form. There was a quote, you know, you're talking about. Um you know, uh, some, some thoughts about constraining more radical elements. And there was a quote, and I can't remember if it was in your podcast or if I read it somewhere else, but that, um, you know, uh, everybody knows that, that communists, or, or a lot of people know that communists were very active in the CIO. They, they were some of their, some of the best organizers in the CIO were communists and socialists. And that was not unknown to the leaders of the CLO, CIO, yeah. like John L. Lewis. And, um, 
there was a uh a, a quote i think from lewis saying uh something about you know you have to know who the hunter and the dogs are and i'm happy to have communists as the dogs as long as i'm the hunter or something like that right yeah. so basically like you know as long as i can keep these people on a leash like you know whatever they can believe whatever they want but as long as as long as it serves me and kind of my interest in power and and you know lewis i think it was i think it was in in, in that podcast because there was a there was one episode yeah. on you know personalities and and lewis being a um a shapeshifter in some of the tactics, right? Uh, because he was in the uh, early 1900s more conservative and ant and, and like less kind of keen on industrial unionism, and then he becomes a the leader of industrial unionism, right? Yeah, and and that was uh, who gets the bird, the hunter or the dog, and it was uh, mm. an extremely. Um, you know, he was, it was not unintentional to call the communist dogs. Uh, he understood the insult involved. Um, but, you know, part of what he was trying to relay is that he had the situation under control, right? To all the people within the CIO who were worried about the communist organizers, the communists in positions of leadership in certain unions, he related to them, look, we're going to use him for a little bit, and then we're going to kick him out. Right. And and that's sort of what what happened, not under his watch, because he would leave in 1940. But that's sort of what 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 eventually happened. Uh, Who Gets the Bird was the the title of a newsletter by uh, Jonah Furman, who's mm -hmm. now uh, at the UAW. Um, but yeah, I mean, Lewis is a contradictory character. Uh, he in the 1920s, um, you know, was recognized as a very autocratic dictatorial union leader. Um, you know, he, he did a lot of things of questionable moral character then and later. Um, but he was interested in power in the 1920s. It was a really difficult time to be head of the coal miners. Uh, the anthracite coal industry was, was dying. Um, and, you know, just given the general mood of the twenties, the sort of welfare capitalism programs and whatnot, unions in general were in decline. And then a lot of them were really gutted with the great depression. Um, and then, you know, comes, comes along Roosevelt and the National Industrial Relations Act. And Lewis had been very instrumental in pushing for Section 7A of the NIRA, which uh, formally guaranteed workers the right to organize and join unions of their own choosing. It didn't really have any teeth to it, but mm -hmm. it did give some legal sanction to for, for Lewis and the mine workers to go out into the coal fields and say, hey, uh, the president wants you to join a union, right? Now's the right. time. And so they do. And uh, in 1933, they work out the bituminous coal code uh, that they had basically sought since their, the founding of the union in 1890. And it was an industry-wide coal code, uh, you know, with FDR's blessing. And it was a huge win. And it, it rebuilt the mine workers, right? They went from um, a union of less than 100,000 to all of a sudden a union of 600,000, a very powerful political player, uh, you know, very, very quickly. And Lewis kind of looked around at the moment to other union leaders and he said, what are you all doing, right? This is the moment, this, right, right now you have to rebuild your union. Like there, there's not gonna come along a time like this in, in the future, like this is this is the moment that you have to seize. And so uh, with Sidney Hillman of the clothing workers and David Dubinsky of the garment workers and a few other AFL leaders, 
they broke off to form the Committee on Industrial Organizations and then eventually the, the Congress uh, of Industrial Organization uh, with the idea that, you know, there, there wasn't going to come along a time that was better to organize industrial workers, uh, despite the AFL's resistance to organizing unskilled workers. Um, and so they did. And um, you could say that uh, this was a radical departure for Lewis. Um, in a lot of ways, it was like for him to become a champion of the working class after being this union, this autocratic union boss in the 1920s. Um, but you could also say it's very consonant with his character from from that period as well, in that he saw an opportunity for power, right. and he seized it. Right. Yeah. That, it, 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 explain uh, the difference between an industrial unionism that that kind of the, the CIO pushed and and the craft unionism of of the AFL. Why why was it industrial unionism that really um, that that really captured this moment of, of opportunity and not the um and not the uh the the established labor movement right because there was a you know it, it wasn't yeah. as big i mean it was probably it was probably the the you know the af of l before the 1930s 1920s was probably about the size of the labor movement today uh, I, I can't remember. I, I'm not exactly sure the percentage, but it was not much bigger or smaller. Um, and so there was there was a big base there among the American Federation of Labor. Why did they and, and their vision of craft unionism, why were they not able to take advantage of the opportunity presented? And why did industrial unionism, uh, why was industrial unionism able to do that? Yeah, I mean, by the numbers, the AFL at the time of the break with the CIO was about the same size as the labor movement today. It was about 10% of American workers. Uh, the latest BLS numbers just came out. It's exactly 10%. Um, you could, one could argue that the American Federation of Labor was actually in a much better um, situation in terms of its leverage at that point uh, because it was all private sector workers. Uh, public mm -hmm. sector unionism was not uh, was not um, was not legal. It was not legalized. Uh, at that point. And so, um, and, and FDR famously came out when certain government workers did try to organize and said, you know, you can't, you can't organize against the government, right? Like he was, he, he just didn't, couldn't wrap his, his mind around public sector unionism. Um, so it was 10%. And, uh, but it was a powerful 10%. You know, the American Federation of Labor came along in 1886. And it remained the dominant labor federation in America until the 1930s. And I think part of its staying power, despite the fact that it was uh, self-limited, exclusionary, racist, problematic in all sorts of different ways. Despite all that stuff, it had staying power because um, it had a theory of leverage and power that did make sense of um, the American economy at a certain point in history, right? They wanted to organize particular workers with certain skills that could not be replaced. And so it was a kind of labor aristocracy um, you still see iterations of craft, like very powerful iterations of craft unionism today. The Nurses Union, National Nurses United, CNA, like that that's essentially a craft union, right? Like they they understand they have a certain power within their workplace that is greater than that of, you know, hospital techs and whatnot. And so they form their own union that's separate from other healthcare workers. Um, with the idea that by organizing their particular trade with their particular skills, they're going to have power. And it's a theory of 
of uh, labor power that, that actually works. And uh, at that time in the American e economy, um, it was particularly apt with sort of itinerant, skilled uh, tradespeople like moving from town to town. Um, once you get the formation of these huge factories, right, the sort of mass production era, um, that theory of labor power begins to make less and less sense, right? It's not that you can't still execute it. It just becomes really self-defeating in a lot of ways. And so what the AFL would do when it went into these big factories is try to hive off workers according to different jurisdictions, right? They'd say, okay, this particular skilled tradesperson goes to this union, this particular uh, skilled tradesperson goes to this union, and the rest of these unskilled workers, like we're not going to deal with because they're they're not organizable. That's sort of their approach. And you can imagine if you're going into a factory thinking about division first, you're not going to do very well. And so this theory of labor power was just particularly unsuited to the development of mass production. And um, and Lewis, Hillman, Dubinsky, they they saw it. They understood that they're like, hey, we're in a new era and we need new organizing committees, new organizing techniques if we're going to take advantage. Mm. Um. Adam wrote in our uh, note document that, that we keep uh, on the property rights question is that actually tenure for teachers in Alabama started as a property right. Um, so that's my understanding. Yeah, that was kind of like, you know, how it developed here. So that's interesting that you bring that up. And um, one thing that I wanted to kind of circle back to, Jacob, if it's okay, is you talked about the culture of unity that the CIO was really building um, and not to spend too much time on like the cultural aspects, but I think that's really interesting in their use of radio and emerging technologies. Um, and I think yeah. it's obviously we're on a labor radio show podcast, right? So we are trying to do, you know, that kind of work in, in the same spirit. So I really appreciated you bringing that up and maybe we'll have time to circle back to that, but I'll let you get back to it, Jacob. Well, no, no. Yeah. Uh, I just, what I'm are curious. your thoughts on that? Man? Yeah. I'm yeah. just, yeah. Curious. No, what do you think about that in terms of today like 2024 um you know how does that how does that look today and uh what could we learn from that yeah i mean that's a difficult lesson to apply in a lot of ways i think when when cohen talked about um <clears throat> when cohen talked about the culture of unity um there there was the uh exploitation of new mass cultural mechanisms that the cio was very interested in and they were very good at. Uh, they had, you know, they had a very developed communications plan, communications strategy that involved, um, that involved, uh, you know, bringing in workers from different uh, ethnic and racial enclaves to all come together and to identify themselves as working people. I mean, it was a huge cultural shift that they were able to accomplish. Um, <clears throat> and the biggest uh, divisions, of course, were racial and, and ethnic. And this was a really difficult dynamic that they had to deal with, like in uh, Packing House, in a lot of steel company towns. Um, the companies had brought in black workers and workers of other ethnicities specifically for the point of being strike breakers, right? right and so right. they had instilled this culture of division within a lot of these towns. And part of what the CIO had to, had to do was to bring in all workers and say, you are welcome here. And, and this was a really difficult task at the time because, again, the AFL, uh, the dominant labor federation in America, the thing that most workers would identify as organized labor, it had explicitly made its mission division, right? They were going to go into the factories and divide everyone as they saw fit. 
And so this idea that the unions would be for everyone, that the that they wanted everyone in the unions, and they specifically wanted uh, black workers and workers of other ethnicities to be in the union, that was that was the starting point of CIO organizing. And to go back to the communist influence, it helped that a lot of communists were involved in the organizing. Right? They weren't they weren't in the CIO as a kind of organized political presence. In fact, they did a lot to hide their affiliations at certain points. I mean, we can talk about that, the sort of like secretive, quasi-manipulative nature of communists within these new structures. Um, but they were hired by the CIO as kind of cannon fodder, right? Like Lewis would say, like, you're not going to have influence as an organized political faction within the CIO, but just go out there and organize, right? I'm going to hire you, go out there and organize. And it's estimated that of the 200 original steelworker organizers, something like 60 to 80 of them were communists, right? Mm. And the communists brought along a a firm commitment to racial equality. I mean, more than other other left factions, um, you know, more than even like the progressive visions of the CIO leaders, they were fully committed to racial egalitarianism and their influence in Packing House, their influence in uh, the Electrical Workers Union, their, their influence in the steel workers organizing. It was pretty evident, right? They understood that uh, you need to have all workers in the union or it was going or you're going to lose. Um, and so that that was, you know, especially especially in its ascendant period, the CIO was really committed to overcoming all those divisions. Now, of course, it would be romantic to say that white and black workers were going out and having beers after work and whatnot, but it was instilled in them that they needed to work together at mm -hmm. the workplace if they were going to win real rights. And that was an accomplishment of the CIO. I mean, in building that culture of unity, it wasn't it wasn't perfect, right? I mean, this was still Jim Crow America, but it was a huge advance in, in um, raising expectations around a new kind of racial egalitarianism. And in a lot of ways, the CIO moment paved the way for the civil rights movement. I mean, oftentimes, um, many civil rights uh, leaders gained experience through their labor organizing work. Cleveland Robinson, for instance, worked at District 65 and later became, you know, a key key figure in the civil rights movement. Um, so there was that, that experience that was born in the CIO and developing the culture of unity. And then also a certain discontent with its limitations that I think also fueled the civil rights movement later. Um, I've got two more questions. I I, I just... I could have this conversation with you for for hours. It seems like uh, <laughs> I really appreciate your your taking the time. I don't want to. I want to be respectful of your time. So I have t I have two more things that that I'm interested in, in your um, in, in you relaying to the audience. Um, the I, I mentioned and, and and we've touched on the fact that the Steelworkers campaign was really pretty was a pretty top down affair. Can you explain that and how uh, and and you know. And 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 how that fact has actually affected the study of the steelworkers campaign because like there's there's less literature about organizing in the steel industry than there was in the auto industry just because it was kind of um, it was less interesting to the people who would be interested in in doing labor history because a lot of people who are interested in doing labor history are of the left and so the auto workers campaign is more kind of. Uh, emblematic of of kind of what we would want to see and and i wonder if part of another part of the reason is just because it was so you know um you know uninteresting you know like this just kind of happened there was an agreement between <laughs> the union leaders and the bosses and then there you go the steel workers were organized right um so so yeah, yeah. talk to us about about that story and the ramifications of it and 
also, um, are the paper workers going to be uh, uh, going to be in the story later on yeah. in the podcast? Uh, no, unfortunately not. I mean, I do branch out into to to tackle that first question. I do branch out into talking about a lot of other unions, but there are so many different ventures of the CIO that mm -hmm. I couldn't. I, I I make mention of all of them. Uh, but I really only do deep dives on on some of them. Uh, so I get into, I mean, in later episodes, I get into textiles, uh, packing house, uh, longshoremen. So uh, there are deep dives into the varied CIO unions, but I don't cover them all in the podcast, no. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that when, uh, like in the 60s with the development of sort of new left labor history and the desire to um privilege a different kind of writing different kind of study of labor than had previously existed right the, a lot a lot of the labor studies before that had really focused on institutional structures and the development of organized labor at that level and there was a desire to write up bottom write bottom up histories of different unions mm. and um auto workers electrical workers packing house workers right they like these were like militant bottom-up surges uh that were really exciting to write about steel workers <laughs> not not so much i mean and and for for you know at least two reasons one because of what we just mentioned the very top-down nature of its formation the fact that myron taylor um who was you know head of u.s steel at the time and sort of a you know a more progressive industrialists, right? He wasn't a Tom Girdler or, a, or a Eugene Grace. Like he was, he had a kind of forward um, looking vision of capitalism and he understood that what was involved in the New Deal, it wasn't the end of industrial capitalism. It was just a new phase and, and one mm. where um, where it, it behooved the uh, industrialists to play along with organized labor despite their hatred of it. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, it was that kind of situation where um, where the industry or where one particular, you know, major player in an industry was just receptive to unionism and Lewis liked going out to fancy lunches. And so that's how, that's how the Steelworkers Organizing Committee won its big victory. Um, the other side of that is a history of real defeat. That's not fun to look at. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, if there was one real, um, justification for the steelworkers organizing committee to use the company unions it was to look at the history of steelworker organizing i mean just an absolutely brutal affair a brutal repressive affair homestead 1919 i mean it was a it was a it's a tragic history right i mean it's a history of brutal repression from the capitalist class like it, it's it, and so when they were organizing steel a lot of the organizers said, look, like we have to go about this very gingerly, very gingerly, mm. because the willingness to send in the guns in this industry, it's it's intimidating. Um, and so, you know, that strategy of taking over the company unions was was actually quite, quite, quite smart, I think. Um, the other Foster part of it is that they're for it, actually, uh, you know, famous communist labor organizer, William Foster uh, advocated taking over company right. unions. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there was um, in the in the next episode of the podcast, actually, uh, wait, yeah, no, the, the fourth episode is coming out on Tuesday, this Tuesday. And in that episode, I get into um, the communists approach to trade unions over the years and, uh, the, you know, tool and, and fosters uh, approach there. Um, so I'll, I'll get into that in the next uh, oh, episode. Be really interesting, um, for sure. Uh, yeah, there's a sort of deep dive on uh, the communist influence and just the influence of the left more broadly. 
uh, looking at, you know, just their their relationship to the CIO, both salutary and its, its limitations. Um, but the other part of that, you know, the, the the reason why there wasn't a ton of writing about the steel industry is because there was also this massive, massive defeat, uh, which is the which is the subject of the fifth episode of the podcast uh, in Little Seal, uh, summer mm -hmm. of 1937, Memorial Day Massacre. Um, it was a massive effort. Uh, and I think that some would fault certain elements of the organizing. But for the most part, again, given the role of energetic communists in in organizing and being committed to a kind of militant disruption uh, that was that was effective in a, in a lot of ways during during the CIO moment, um, the the state finally um, the state finally uh, you know threw its hands up. Right, FDR famously uh, declares a plague on both your houses uh, in the little steel strike. And, um, you know, it's a very, it, there's very basically a return to violent, bloody repression at Little mm. Steel, and they lose. And yes, Little Steel is eventually organized with the war, um, but it was a dramatic illustration of the limits of the New Deal order, right? Uh, FDR was a friend to labor in some ways, but a very limited friend. And um, Little Steel was... Uh, I mean, there's a great book by uh, the law professor Ahmed White about Little Steel, trying to recapture some of what the meaning was there. But at the time, you know, it wasn't sexy to write about. It was uh, a, a radical display of militancy that got absolutely crushed. Um, so there's that as well in the steel industry, right? There's there's all these these reasons why I think new left historians would avoid it. But I think it's a really important part of the story, and right. um, you know we shouldn't we shouldn't turn away from the elements of history that we don't necessarily find romanticizable. You know. Mm. Well, um, a a as you you know continue uh, you know some of the uh, some of your work outside of this podcast, or maybe in in a, a future installment of the podcast, uh, I would encourage reading into the history of the paper workers. Peter Kelman has a really good book about it. Uh, Julius Getman has a, a good book about um, a paper strike in 1987 and 88, uh, the betrayal of Local 14. Uh, that was really good. Dives into some of the history there. Um, and, uh, it's, I, I found in your description of the steel workers, a lot of similarities in the paper workers. Um, and, and so, uh, uh, so like I said, it's, it's interesting that those two unions merged given their, their similar history. And so, you know, to wrap up, I, I guess, you know, I, I think that a big reason for your podcast is the, to give, you know, wh what can we learn from it today? We are in a moment right for labor um and there are kind of debates about how much of a movement it is at this point or how how much labor is on the move as we were um going on 100 years ago we have seen another year of decline in union density um but you know there are still some promising signs and so what are the lessons for people in the labor movement to take from the CIO and uh, what are people? What are some lessons that people on the left can take from the communists' experience in the CIO? Uh, and maybe on that latter question, um, you can give us some teasers for the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and in the final episode of the podcast, there's going to be nine episodes, I think, in all. 
And the final episode is strictly devoted to lessons. So I asked mm. all of the labor historians I talked to, like, you know, what what is the significance of the CIO moment for today? Uh, as you can imagine, they had a lot to say about that question. <laughs> and so I'm devoting an entire episode basically to Yeah, to that. right. And so I just want um, you to distill that into like two or three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> two minutes. Okay. Easy question. Easy question. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, people draw different lessons from the CIO moment. I think that there's a lot um, there's a lot going for the idea that the political economic context of the 30s is so different from the present that it's really difficult to port lessons. Mm. Um, but I think it, I think it's possible. I think it just takes some work and understanding it. Like, what were the root motivations and root structural issues at play there? And I guess I would emphasize two things again, just sort of knowing we only have a few minutes. Um, the, the first has to do with uh, the context, and I, I don't think we're anywhere close to the kind of, um, you know, economic precarity of the Great Depression. And so, you know, this idea that um, that capitalism has been uh, delegitimated in some way, it might be true for certain segments of the left, but it's it's not true for the American public as a whole. And so we're, we're not in that kind of ripe uh, ripe economic condition for this labor upsurge. I, I would say, though, that um, that we're in a great political juncture. And, um, you know, I mean, I know you all just did a section about Sean Fain's endorsement of Biden. Um, there's there's reasons to be very appreciative of what's happening at the NLRB right now, right? Mm-hmm. As like horrible as uh, what the Biden administration is doing in general, and what sort of takes the the news headlines right now. Right. A receptive, non-hostile NLRB is a huge boon to the labor movement, and you have to sort of appreciate that for what it is. And so, you know, in 2024. Uh, if Biden is not elected, you know, people like Jennifer Abruzzo are going to be very quickly removed from their posts. Um, so that's something to keep in mind, right? It's not just a economic, it's not just the economic conditions, it's a certain political willingness to to not necessarily support organized labor, because you can't really ever expect the government to be on the side of workers, but at least not to send in the guns and, and you know, and be on the side of the corporations. That kind of at least neutrality is really important. And it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's a story of American labor history, like it's impossible for workers to win, if they don't at least have that, that, that the a neutralization of that mm-hmm. typical government corporate alliance. So that's one, I think, key thing. Um, and it's one reason to be very appreciative of the kind of NLRB that we have right now, even despite the fact that, you know, there's other atrocities being committed by the administration. That's one thing. The second thing, and I would say this is the most important thing for organized labor right now, is that um, without renewing some kind of strategic disruption, it's going to be really difficult uh, to gain back power and to force the kind of legal changes that we would need in order to you know, pass something like the PRO Act or just, just, just have a new legal regime for labor in this country. Um, you know, again, with the sit-down strike, part of the calculus there was that they were going to do something illegal so as to shift national discourse around labor law in their favor, right? I mean, it was it was directly to organize those employers, but it was also to say, you know, this, this, this disruption, it's going to go on provided this legal regime is in place. And it and it worked, right? And it was you could again say that it was a containment of radical energies, but the grand bargain like paid off. 
And I think that it's going to be really difficult for labor to do something similar today without engaging in that militant disruption, right? Not just walking off the job, not just, um, you know, engaging in these big strike actions, but to figure out what the strategic choke points in the contemporary deindustrialized logistical economy are to seize them and to stop production and distribution until unions are recognized and labor gains power. Without that kind of militant disruption, which will bring on a kind of state repression that we haven't seen for a few generations, without that, it's going to be really difficult, I think, to to turn the ship around. Benjamin Fong, I uh, appreciate your time this morning. You teach at Arizona State University. You've got a recent article out in Catalyst, How Can Workers Organize Against, Cap- Organize Against Capital Today, uh, where you touch on some of those things. The podcast is called Organize the Unorganized. You can find that pretty much wherever podcasts are found, right? Yep, it's on Jackman Radio. Uh, there's also a SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash organize the unorganized. All right. Anything else uh, you want to leave the audience with before we let you go? No, just uh, enjoy the podcast. You know, uh, you don't have to listen to much of my monotone voice. It's mostly labor historians and experts talking. And uh, again, like you said at the beginning, a lot of fun songs and archival clips. All right. Appreciate it, Ben. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. All right, folks. There you go. Yeah, Yeah, check it out. Definitely do check it out. I I can tell there's a lot of work put into it. Mm-hmm. Like I just yeah. want to say that right off the bat. Um, so I really appreciate Benjamin and and the entire team behind it. Uh, it's important. It's important that it gets out there, and uh, particularly in this time, you know, there's a lot of us out here who are trying to revitalize this labor movement. So of course we want to look back at when it was working, or at least appeared to be working, and when we had momentum and were winning as a working class. So uh, we got to bring back that 1930s people power. There you go. Absolutely. Um, So 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857. If you want to give us a call, we got one more segment, and then we'll get out of here if we don't get any calls. The last thing is that there is uh, more and more controversy about Sean O'Brien's... uh, like continuous meetings with Donald Trump. I think they've had two, and now there's going to be a third on uh, the 31st of next week. And uh, for this one, there were apparently whispers of some general executive board members, or, or at least one, saying that they were not going to be attending this meeting with Donald Trump. I don't know uh, the status of attendance at the other meetings with Donald Trump. Uh, not sure. Uh, but apparently Sean O'Brien um, sent a, a memo to all members of the general executive board saying that it was mandatory for them to come. And uh, this really rankled the feathers of John Palmer. He is a uh, vice president at large uh, on the general executive board uh, for the Teamsters International Union. He is a um, a TDU leader, a longtime TDU leader. He has not been um, afraid of controversy. Uh, one of the more, uh, you know, what I think one of the more militant leaders of the TDU. Um, and so he responded with his own letter about uh, to Sean O'Brien, and that has been made public. And that is, uh, and so here's a, a little snippet of what he said. He said um, that uh, 
I write in response to your memo dated January 24th, 2024, demanding that I attend a GEB meeting for the purpose of hearing from former President Donald J. Trump, who has been indicted on 91 felony charges. He is a known union buster, scab, and insurrectionist. I refuse to attend that meeting, which violates the clear language of the international constitution. And so here's where he quotes from the constitution, where, where he makes his constitutional case against the, the meeting with Donald Trump. He says, in accordance with Article 2, Section 3, Paragraph A, which states the following, quote, No person who knowingly associates, as that term has been defined in prior decisions or disciplinary charges under Article 19, no person who knowingly associates with any member or associate of organized crime families or other criminal groups or who actively advocates the overthrow of a federal, state, or provincial government by force or violence. Or, so there, there's this one type of person, right? This person who associates with members or associates of organized crime families or people who want to overthrow the government. Or people who are actually members of these groups. Or is a member of any party or group and knows of and actively uh, its purpose to overthrow a federal, state, or provincial government by force or violence shall be allowed to hold membership in the international union or any of its subordinate bodies. So there's actually a pretty broad prohibition here, uh, not only against being a member of an insurrectionary group or being an insurrectionist yourself, but also associating with such a person. Associating with such a person or group under Palmer's reading of the international constitution of the Teamsters could be subject for not only discipline, but expulsion from the Teamsters. So um, that's a very, very strong, you know, I mean, very strong charge there from Palmer, a very strong response to O'Brien's um, uh, demand that Palmer and other GEB members attend this meeting with Trump. And so in his letter, Palmer continues, given this language and the appalling record of Trump appointing union busters to the Department of Labor, NLRB, and United States Postal Service, uh, his scamming of an IATSE picket line, and his refusal to act on the Butch Lewis Act on behalf of tens of thousands of pensioners across America, this meeting should not occur. Your private meeting with Trump, accompanied by the widely circulated thumbs-up photo, appears as a tacit endorsement while it leaves the membership out of the loop. This private backdoor decision will divide the union and weaken it at a time when we need to fight corporate America and their union busters. During the UAW strike, he chose to meet with non-union workers and attacked the UAW and its leadership. Joe Biden went to the picket line. I will be more than happy to meet with Joe Biden on this date and echo the sentiments of UAW President Sean Fain in his full-throated endorsement of President Joe Biden. As a United States Army veteran, I cannot support a draft dodger and traitor who deliberately undermines the Constitution of the United States. We should never entertain dialogue with a candidate with such an anti-union record. Finally, you, sir, do not have the constitutional authority to, quote, require that I participate in a meeting with this reprehensible in individual any more than you could, quote, require that I meet with an organized crime figure. I look forward to meeting President Biden in the afternoon of the 31st. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, very strong, um, very strong uh, uh, language there from Palmer and, um, you know, I mean, a pretty strong constitutional case against the meeting with Trump as well. So, um, 
like I said, that continues to be a controverse, uh, a controversy online um, amongst Teamsters and people, people in the labor movement uh, that are on the left. And so we'll continue to keep an eye on it. And, and, and it's just, I mean, you know, I think that most of the, the, the most common understanding is that all of these meetings by Sean Fain with President Trump are performative. I don't. I think that most people do not believe that Sean O'Brien will endorse Donald Trump because such a thing would be unthinkable, uh, especially after you know Palmer mentions the Butch Lewis Act. The Butch Lewis Act saved uh, uh, several union pension funds with eighty-one billion dollars, and the biggest single beneficiary of it was the Teamsters Central States Pension Fund. Right, so it's. It's kind of unthinkable that the Teamsters do anything other than endorse Joe Biden. Um, and yet, he uh, O'Brien continues to make a show of these meetings with Trump. And so it's unclear to what end he continues to do this. You know, I mean, even, you know, I, I think that um, the the case becomes less strong the more often you meet with him, right? You know, I mean, the, the strongest case that O'Brien has is for the first meeting, right? And you can say like, okay, I did the meeting and what do you know? He's bad, right? Um, but the more he does that, the weaker his case gets that this is just in pursuit of, you know, fairness and vetting and all this stuff, especially when you consider that Trump has been president before and we have a record that we can just look at instead of interviewing him and and talking to him. And so, you know, We'll continue to keep an eye on this and see what happens, but uh, I mean, it would just be kind of appalling if they actually do endorse Trump. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Do you have any thoughts on that, Adam? Well, I I want to point out uh, Jose in the chat mentioned that Teamsters Mobilize have a petition out about this issue. So you mm. know, there's a lot of conversation going on among members. Um, you know, Jose was asking about TDU, and you know, he he doesn't believe TDU will say anything about it. Um, it will be interesting to see, you especially know. with TDU having a a prominent leader now speaking out about it. I think the pressure is the with with Palmer's statement being made public. I think the you would think the pressure would be building um, among TDU members to come out with some sort of statement about this, but I don't know. Right, right. And, you know, it's uh, it's tough, right? It's it's a tough situation when there's disagreements within your own union, right? And it um, it's it can be difficult to maintain relationships, right, when, when you're dealing with those kind of disagreements. Right. Um, let's see. Scott in the chat says, I don't think labor should be political. However, I do think we should support people who support workers. Uh, and I get that. Um, you know, I understand that that issue. I also see, I mean, I see, I see different sides to that. Really, um, in some senses, the ways that our unions are political is not necessarily right. very effective. Right. Um, so, me personally, I'm not a big fan of you know the large amounts of money that are just kind of dumped into the hands of Democratic candidates. Um, I just don't think that's a very effective use of funds. Right. And I don't know that that has proven to get us a whole lot of results, right. um, you know, especially given the quality of some of these candidates, uh, the quality of some of the campaigns. Yeah. Um, so 
I think there's a lot you could discuss about how, you know, how political our, our unions are, like how they engage in that politics. Right, um, right. You know, should should your union, you know, never work with a Republican, right? That's something that's going to come up. And I think it I think it certainly depends on the circumstances, right? You have to look at where are they on our issues. In the case of Trump, like, it's very obvious where he is on the issues. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, you, you don't have to, to guess at that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, like, politics is a reflection of what's happening in our society. And so, you know, whether you care about politics, politics cares about you, you know, mm-hmm. and it's happening to you. And, um, you know, so that's why I think it's important that we be engaged in it. It's just, you know, how we do that is up for debate, of course. Um, right. Will Will in the chat makes a good point, and basically, I was I, I was gonna uh, say this on union shouldn't be political. You know, every, everything is politics, yeah, and yeah. trade unionists need to be talking about issues inside of work and outside in the political world, and and at political world, and that's exactly. I, I think that's exactly right. I think, Adam, that the way that unions participate in politics is sometimes destructive or at least not helpful. But that unions participate in politics, right. I think, is good because the justification for unionism is basically that workers should have more control. And so all unions getting involved in politics is is expanding the quest for worker control into the civil, social, and political realm uh, outside of the workplace. And I think that in and of itself, um, you know, for workers to have more power and, and influence in the uh, civil, social, and political world would be an unmitigated good. Um, yeah. How, how our unions currently go about practicing politics, that's, that is something that, that I am more critical of. But, right. uh, but, but just do union, should unions do politics – the answer to that question, I think, is obviously yes. I think so, too, yeah, yeah. because it's just it, – it, your influence is going to be limited outside of that. And, you know, ultimately, I think the long-term goal here should be building a working-class movement and building our power as working-class people. Yeah. Um, and that should be the direction of your politics. Like, is it aimed in that direction? You know, is it serving that ultimate goal? Uh, to build a working class movement like we had in the 1930s right? Uh, and, to, and to have that kind of power where, where we can actually win real demands. Um, I think that's should be the end, the end goal here. Um, so anyway, that's that's my thoughts about it. Uh, you know, I, I know there's a lot of internal debates that folks in the Teamsters are going to have to have about this approach and, you know, what they ultimately do. Um, you know, in terms of the endorsement of Biden, uh, you know, I, I feel a lot like, uh, notary, uh, some comments we got at the very beginning of the episode that, you know, kind of saw it coming eventually. It's kind of, you know, not only is it sort of expected, it, it is ultimately, you know, the least bad choice probably on the table. Um, you know, the timing of it, uh, the dissonance, you know, um, uh, of calling for a ceasefire and then turning around and endorsing, that's difficult. Absolutely. And I felt the same way at the AFL-CIO MLK conference, you know, and I talked about that a week or two ago. Um, you know, here was all this, you know, rousing rhetoric, 
about civil rights and human rights and the connection to labor rights and, and the legacy of Dr. King and not a word about Palestine and not a word right. about the 26,000 people who are dead, right. who've been killed. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's really tough. Um, it's really tough. But uh, William had a comment that capitalism and democracy don't mix. We should never work with any party that represents capitalism and the bosses. And I'm sensitive to that. Uh, I agree with the first part that a capitalist society is never going to be a truly democratic society because of the inherent inequality of power. Right. Um, you know, in terms of do we work with parties? You know, I really struggle with that a lot, and I don't know that there is a right answer all the time uh, necessarily. I think it may depend on the situation and whether it's a local, state national level um where you're at where your power lies like what kind of influence you bring to bear um so i think that's a complicated one uh but i'm definitely sympathetic to to that and that's really my gut instinct um is yeah. that you know they're not for us like the democratic party is not a working class party right and so whether you endorse Biden as your tactical decision for 2024, uh, whether you work with them on certain issues, I think is a different story, right? Like, um, I'm willing to work with Republicans if they're willing to do something good for workers, right? You know, if a Republican in the legislature is willing to sponsor a bill that helps working people, well, hell yeah. Mm -hmm. Still going to disagree with, you know, 99% of everything else you do. But if we can accomplish something that moves the ball down the field and actually, you know, does provide material impacts for working people, I'm all about that. Right. Um, and so to the extent that we can get those kind of wins from Democrats, that's great. Uh, but, yeah, I just don't necessarily. Um, I don't know. I, I certainly have no loyalty to the Democratic Party. Um, nor do I think working people should because the Democratic Party has no loyalty to working people. You know, if we use them to our advantage, then great. Uh, know that they're always trying to use us to their advantage. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's that's that's the relationship. Um, uh, just right. kind of checking out some of the comments here as we wrap up. Uh, J.C. Luna says, should unions do politics? In some ways, you're correct. Regarding presidential elections, specifically, the popular vote has no say in who gets in office. It's the Electoral College. Our voice is null. Uh, as an Alabamian, I can only say that uh, I 100 percent feel that because my my vote will not matter whether I write in Nick Saban, whether I vote for Trump or Biden, whether Cornell West or a Green Party candidates on the ballot. It literally will make no difference what I do in November. And so honestly, but the UAW's endorsement matters, especially it does. because it they does. have a lot of weight in swing states like Michigan. Yes, I agree. I 100 percent agree. So like there's there's also something, you know, to add to the dynamic is like there's your personal choice. And then there's like how you feel about the strategy of organizations and, and larger forces uh, and what other people should do. Uh, and, of course, people love to tell other people what they should do when it comes to voting, um, you know, and I am very uh, I'm very you know, cynical about that because, you know, like a lot of folks on the left, I've experienced people uh, blaming me for Trump uh, in 2016 or, um, you know, it, that really is bizarre. 
uh, because I live in Alabama and Trump won Alabama by over 20 points. Uh, so yeah, for most, for a lot of people, I won't say most, but a lot of people in this country, their personal choice in November will mean very little. Uh, and so should you go vote? Yeah, I say go vote, especially if it won't take you much time, which it probably won't. If you can, if you can vote, you should go vote. Um, but at the end of the day, like there's so much more we should be doing and organizing in the workplace, building community coalitions, building our power inside and outside the workplace, expanding our networks, educating each other, agitating and organizing. Like that's really, you know, where we should direct most, most of our energy uh, and just engage in electoral politics on a like tactical basis. But anyway, that's about all I want to say on electoral politics for a while because I really don't care about it that much, frankly. Um, we do have, uh, we've got one call and we're coming up on, on the, the end of the call, uh, the end of the, uh, show. So we'll sure. make this one quick. Um, and I think I know who this is, uh, from a two, five, six area code, uh, Joe, um, what's on your mind? Hey, Jacob. Hey, Joe. Uh, Sean O'Brien, uh. I don't understand what he's thinking is by by meeting with Donald Trump. You you hit the nail on the head when you when you say that uh, he had a four year term. We could uh, we can see where he stands and to use the excuse of betting uh, a candidate just don't make sense to me. Uh, but that ain't really what I wanted to talk about. And this will be quick. I just wanted to mention the the execution in Alabama this week. Uh, and and Meemaw Ivey's uh, statement made after the execution was, we have, now I ain't quoting her, but, but, her, but, her, but her statement was, we've carried out a humane execution. Now, does them two words go together? Right, right. Uh, there's no such thing as a humane execution. Uh, she had been with better served just to say that Alabama carried out an execution. Uh, and then Steve Marshall weighed in on it, uh, defending it, and uh, he basically wanted to say that uh, the family got justice in the matter. And maybe true enough, but you got to let the family say whether that is true or not. Not a statement from the Attorney General, but the thing I find ironic about it, the family, the 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 family was complicit with the with the murder in the first place. The the preacher husband hired the hitman that killed his wife. Mm. So uh, you know, don't 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 weigh don't weigh the family in with 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 that situation when the family right. created the in the first place but that's all i got to say y'all have a good day hey appreciate you joe appreciate and i'm glad you brought that up for those of you outside alabama who may not be aware uh the state of alabama carried out an experimental execution this week um they used nitrogen gas uh, which had never been used to execute people before in in this country i'm not sure if any other country has ever done it uh, it has been denounced by the United Nations and, and many other countries as well. Um, you know, it's uh, yet another disgrace yeah. for Alabama. Uh, and um, 
yeah, last thing on the comments, uh, there's a lot of great discussion today. I really appreciate that. Um, and uh, JC Luna talks about building infrastructure and building cooperatives. And yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I think you have to operate on as many fronts as possible. And so we need people building co-ops and building community land trust and getting land and resources into the hands of regular everyday people. We need people unionizing in the workplace. Uh, we do need people working in policy spaces and in political spaces. Uh, we need people organizing in the community and organizing tenants, right? And students everywhere. We, we have to be organizing everywhere. Right. Uh, and I think some people make the mistake of focusing entirely on politics uh, and then like our natural reaction among some of us is to say, well, to hell with all of that. Right. And and this have nothing to do with it. Um, but I just say this organized everywhere and wherever you fit in, uh, wherever you have talents, wherever you feel comfortable and you're passionate at the end of the day, like, you know, there's stuff that every one of us can do to try to make this world a better place and try to build a working class movement that can really transform things uh, because we need it. We're, we're, you know, you mentioned earlier, you're, you're concerned about the state of the country. I think, you know, anyone paying attention is concerned and right. should be concerned. You know, well, and, you know, uh, I was going to call back to that talking about the execution, because much like the rhetoric around immigration um, has been getting worse and, and more, mm -hmm. you know, wicked and xenophobic more and, and all this and bloodthirsty. Yeah, the rhetoric around the execution was the same. You know, I mean, I think the the only proper, you know, I, I, I grew up, you know, I grew up in a conservative household. And so I can still, in a lot of ways, see how people believe certain things. And I can understand how a person would believe that for justice to happen, it is it would be necessary to carry out an execution. I no longer agree with that, obviously. I think that's wrong. But I understand that there are people that have that perspective. But the people that I grew up around with that perspective, it was always somber and it was not gleeful and bloodthirsty to the extent that I had conversations with people about the death penalty. It was a, you know, this is a difficult thing that we have to do to carry out justice and should be treated thusly right and and it is absolutely concerning to me again for the state of the country uh and for the state of the world that the bloodthirsty rhetoric is pervading so many avenues of our political discourse um as it relates to immigration and then as it relates to the execution of Kenny Smith with a an experimental um, with a new and experimental form of execution that is by witness accounts the most violent execution uh, in decades in the state of Alabama and um, yeah I mean the rhetoric is just really you know I mean it, it's been it, it's been kind of, I mean kind, you know um, really. Uh, just um 
It's disturbing. It's, yeah, it's it been is disturbing. disturbing. And yeah. it's uh, so. and a lot of it's coming from self-professed pro-life Christians. Right. And, uh, you know, particularly down here in Alabama. You know, I can't say what's happening in California, uh, those of you out that way, but down here, for sure, it's a lot of pro-life Christians, people who call themselves that. And, you know, it's sickening. It yeah. really is. And there's there's a hatred and bigotry that is out there and we have to combat that i mean solidarity is the only way we combat bigotry and the hatred that's out there um i mean that's to me that's the only way we we get through it is is yeah we try to we try to have solidarity with one another and look out for one another uh recognize that we're not better than anybody else no one else is better than us like that's you know, and we have to build a mass working class movement and, and include everybody and not allow ourselves to be divided by, you know, nationality or ethnicity, immigration status, gender, sexuality, all these other ways in which, you know, the bosses and the politicians try to divide us. And unfortunately, there's a lot of folks out there, you know, who, who fall into this and, and who buy into this crap. And then there's the billions of dollars that are spent, you know, pumping this propaganda out to people, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and it's it's it, it, it works on some of them. We've got people out there who are consuming this stuff for hours and hours and hours a day, just hearing vile stuff about their fellow human beings. I mean, right. I think it's a spiritual and moral crisis. Yeah. Um, truthfully and like i am a very materialist oriented kind of guy and try to think about politics from that perspective but like there is something just deeper even than that i think going on um and so yeah uh not to not to end on that somber note the the hopeful thing is i think there are so many instances of people building people power uh and it's happening all over and i think the more we do that, the more we come together, the more we fight for our common interest and start to win for each other. Uh, I think, you know, I think that really is going to make a difference. Um, and like Scott says in the chat, solidarity leads to more empathy. And I 100% agree with that. And uh, with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. Appreciate everybody listening. Please like the stream on your way out. If you're listening to us wherever you get your podcast, give us a five star rating, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts. We got to get those numbers up for oh, yeah. sure. Um, TVLR.fm slash donate. You can make a one time or recurring donation there. Um, recurring donations really help with the sustainability of the program. If you're a member of a union, then please do think about getting your local or international to sponsor the show. We could not do this without our union union sponsors, even though, you know, listener donations make up the largest single source of funding, um, union sponsors are the, 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 the vast majority of where our funding comes from right. for this program. Um, and, uh, and so it is absolutely necessary. So, uh, if you're a member of a union, please do think about getting your local to sponsor the show or your international, uh, appreciate everybody's time. Yeah. Uh, anything you do, anything you do, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, liking, sharing, subscribing, donating, all of that. It means a lot. We're just a couple union dudes uh, out here trying to preach solidarity. We don't have all the answers, but, you know, 
that's yep. the answer we got so really appreciate everybody's support uh and just you know let's keep on building people power 844-899-TVLR if you want to leave us a voicemail see you next week <laughs>